are back for yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line, talking with writers, directors, cinematographers, production designers, costumers, uh, sound editors, sound designers, VFX people, actors, you name it. We'll talk to them about film and television and bringing everything to life on the big and small screens. And uh, hard to believe we're already at the end of July. But here we are. You know, and you can find all my movie reviews and interviews and print and online in the U.S. and abroad 24-7 on BehindTheLensOnline.net and numerous other publications around the globe. But every Monday, you're going to find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. You know, if you're listening and if you want to be entertained by a tablescape with very some very cool swag, um, just go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page and you can watch our live stream. Um, once again, we have our little animatronic Simba joining us. Timon, very, very cool. Lion King swag and of course a little nod to film that came out this weekend once upon a time in Hollywood Uh, for those of you keeping up with the box office Lion King number one at the box office again this weekend just shy of a billion dollars globally that'll get crossed probably by uh, Tuesday by tomorrow or Wednesday at the latest but debuting this weekend is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Biggest opening for a Tarantino film. And for my money, it is the best Tarantino film. And I'm a huge, 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 I'm a huge Tarantino fan, but uh, particularly love Inglorious Bastards and Hateful Eight. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood outshines both of those. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, One Spot Time in Hollywood in a moment. But let me tell you who's joining us today. We have three incredible live guests joining us today. First up, the quarter hour mark is going to be writer, director, and editor Rick Alverson talking about his new film, The Mountain, which stars Jeff Goldblum and Ty Sheridan. I cannot recommend this film highly enough. It is spellbinding. And Goldblum... This is an Oscar-caliber performance. Um, I would not be... If the film can gain some traction with the Academy members, with critics promoting it, with awards campaigns, um, I would not be surprised to see Goldblum's name bandied about come awards season. Then, I'm very excited about our guest at the midpoint of the show, Kirby Bliss Blanton, is joining us. Uh, Last week... Writer-director uh, Adam Marino was with us talking about his new film, Ring Ring. Kirby stars in that film. She also co-stars in the phenomenal film, Wish Man. And I'm so excited that we're going to get to talk to her about both of those films. Um, uh, Ring Ring is just pure fun. Wish Man, it just, it's fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous. It warms the heart, and it is the story of Frank Shankwitz, who went on to found the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And finishing out this jam-packed show today is producer Drake Dormus. He's going to be talking about Love and Tosha. It's a documentary on Anton Yelchin. Um, And it will make your heart smile, let me tell you that. Uh, so uh, Drake will be joining us at about the uh, the 45 minute mark to talk about the making of uh, this doc, and it's going to be interesting to find out why he, as a successful director himself and having worked with Anton before, why he chose to just produce and bring in Garrett Price as a director. So we'll be talking to all of them throughout the show today. Very exciting three. Very eclectic filmmakers, very eclectic and diverse films. All of them are terrific. But let's go back and talk a little bit about a uh, little bit about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I am in love with this film. Um, 
It is truly his love letter to Hollywood. His passion and his knowledge of insider intricacies of the business as a depth and character richness that's delicious and fun. He plays with character tropes, particularly Al Pacino. And dare I say, a Best Supporting Actor possibility come awards show, uh, awards time. And he pushes the envelopes just enough to let folks know this is a movie, but one rooted in truth. The script is very beautifully crafted. It's set in the summer of 1969. Stars Leonardo DiCaprio as legendary actor Rick Dalton and Brad Pitt as his longtime stuntman Cliff Booth. Um, Pitt, it is the best performance we've seen from him in many, many, many years. He is rock solid. Um, Pitt's Cliff draws you in. Uh, and like his buddy George Clooney, Brad Pitt actually has, looks much better as he has aged. His performance skills have improved as well. And he brings Cliff Booth to life with nuance and subtlety um, as a stuntman. And I've got to say, the, guy, the stuntman in 1969, they were coming out of the Western era, getting ready for the 70s action films. And I was very fortunate that 40 years ago, I was mentored by so many of the second unit guys and the stunt guys who did the John Ford films, who did, who did the TV shows with an, uh, a new guy named Clint Eastwood on Rawhide and Bonanza. Uh, being a stuntman was their life, but it was, it was waning for a lot of them. As Westerns, were, as Westerns were fading out, you know, and that's what a lot of them were known for, was doing Western work. Um, it's like, what do they do? So I was very lucky to be mentored and taken under the wing by so many of these guys. And I heard the stories, the firsthand stories, and how many of them ended up with a guy named Sergio Leone over in Italy doing, quote, the spaghetti westerns. Um, so for me to see this world play out so beautifully as Quentin has created it, it is... it just touches me beyond belief and I so wish that so many of the of the guys that indoctrinated me into old Hollywood I so wish they were still around today to see this film because of the authenticity and the love that is put into it I Margot Robbie there has been a lot of flack a lot of comments came out of can about Margot Robbie and and a quote-unquote minimal performance. Let me tell you something. Nobody else could ever play Sharon Tate but for Margot Robbie. She brings in this beautiful, wide-eyed wonder and joy that she gives Sharon Tate. And you feel Tate's giddiness at actually being an actress. There's a charming scene where, in character, she goes to a movie theater in Westwood. Because a film is playing and she's in the film and she actually says to the, the woman in the ticket in the ticket booth, I'm in the film. Can I see the film? I'm in the film. I know actresses that have done that. And the way that Margot brings this to life, it is pure. It is beautiful. And then we see her in the theater not just watching the film, but listening and watching how people are reacting to the film and to her performance. And you see the smile on her face that she's so happy that people are responding to what she did and she's so happy that she's doing this. I, it's, it's just, it is exquisite, an exquisite performance from her. And Tarantino does a great job at bringing that to life. Luke Perry, this is his swan song. He leaves this world with a high noon moment. Uh, he is in one scene. He is amazing. He is amazing. And you will, you'll get a lump in your throat and you'll tear up a little bit when you see him. A breakout for everybody is Julia Butters. She plays a young actress 
and she and the scene setup is hilarious. You've got DiCaprio's Rick Dalton. He's been hired for this western, and he's a bad guy, and he's the heavy, and he is essentially taking this young girl hostage, captive, and uh, holding her for ransom. Her uncle is played by Luke Perry. Julia Butters charms and chants, be she in character as the actress playing a role or as the young actress. She and DiCaprio are magic and hilarious. Um, So be on the lookout for Julia Butters, not just in this film, but in years to come, because she is a bright light on the cinematic horizon. Um, This is shot so much has been made about the fact that there are sequences that were shot Hollywood Boulevard and Musso and Franks. Musso and Franks is actually a very important character in the film. Anyone that goes there, all you t- all the TCM Film Festival fans, you've all been to Musso's. You're going to fall in love with how it's displayed, how it's portrayed and its importance in this film. Um and even the Musso dishes are used. The tables are set exactly as Musso sets them. Uh, so it's, it's exquisite. And of course the cars, the cars are to die for, uh, all you car enthusiasts out there. You want those eight cylinder babies? This is the film to see. Um, it's just from beginning to end. And of course there are the Manson murders interwoven, including the Spawn Ranch. And Bruce Dern has a very fun role as George Spann. Uh, be on the lookout for some great performances. Uh, Dakota Fanning being one of them as Squeaky, Squeaky from, uh, at the Mansa at the Spawn Ranch. Um, it just beginning to end. There are recognizable things. There's a lot of truth. But then as with anything Quentin Tarantino, he spins the truth a bit and alters reality. But the way he alters reality with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you're going to love it. The third act explodes, literally and figuratively. So, you know, just this is a movie. Kick back, relax, enjoy, watch. And I've got to say, one of the great aspects of this film is the technicality of it. Technically, it is beautiful. Tarantino has editor Fred Raskin on hand, um, and they do. A, and his DP is Rob Richardson. No surprise here. Uh, the film is lens. It's lit and lensed for 1969, uh, shooting on 1635 and eight millimeter. And I, uh, please, 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 when you go see the film, try and see it in 35 millimeter. This film is made for 35mm. And what 35mm allows you to do as an audience member, it makes you feel like you are there. You are part of the cinematic experience. You're not, there's not a glossy break or glass in between you and the film that you're watching. It is just so glorious and on top of the actual filming by Richardson then we bring it Tarantino brings in TV shows of the day you're going to see Mannix you're going to see commercials you're going to see stuff that was actually airing on television and then there's some made-up commercials and other other fun little things you've got some home movies in there which is why we've got three different cinema, three different formats that the film was shot on, and then all put together. Um, but I can't. Uh, thirty-five millimeter is truly, truly the way to see it. Once you see it in thirty-five, go see it in seventy millimeter. You will not be disappointed. Uh, we've got some driving scenes to try and capture what it was like driving up to uh, the house of Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate on Cielo Drive. Um, the house. As, as many of you know, the original house was torn down years ago. Uh, another house was built there. That house is up for sale right now, as a matter of fact. But Tarantino found a place in the valley to substitute for driving scenes that are, quote-unquote, on Cielo Drive. And, of course, DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, plays the next-door neighbor to Polanski and Tate. 
And the driving scenes are spectacular. Cameras in the back seat, so you're getting the whole thrill of driving on the twisty turns up into the hills. Um, beginning to end, it is just, it's an experience. It is a cinematic experience. This is a masterpiece from Quentin Tarantino. And for all of you who appreciate the inside baseball about Hollywood, not only are you going to love that, but if you know inside baseball about about Quentin, yeah, you got a lot of bare feet in the film too. And right now I, I can think of about two dozen people that are laughing uh, with that line. So what can I tell you? Except go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, waiting for Rick Alverson to call. So why don't we take a, do a PSA break, Pam? And hopefully he will be calling in momentarily. If not, we got plenty of stuff to fill in with. So we'll be right back. Hi, it's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. A powerful threat calls for a greater response. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years. But right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle too. Visit StandUpToCancer.org to learn more. Together, we can save lives. All right, and we are back trying to find out where writer-director, editor Rick Alverson is. Um, but in the meantime, what should we do, Pam? Should we... Should we uh, should we talk about skin? All right. We're going to last week for our regular listeners. You know that last week we were talking about uh, the new movie skin written and directed by uh, written and directed by Guy Native, produced by the wonderful Oren Moverman and store and starring Jamie Bell. Um, it Jamie Bell plays. It's based on a true story of Brian w- uh, Widner, who was part of. He was raised by neo-Nazi racist skinheads and white supremacist, uh, supremacist. And he eventually, he meets a woman who's played by Danielle McDonald. And Danielle is, she just keeps growing her repertoire and her resume. Um, as Brian, we go on this journey as he wants to get out of the group. And with the help of a black activist, a retired Air Force man, a black activist, he helps him get out, and we go on this emotional journey. Jamie's performance is incredible. It is indelible, award-worthy. But what makes this so unique is Guy Nativ's take on it, because he's from Israel. He's not from the United States, so he comes into this unjaded, objective. Uh, he hasn't been living in the world that... We're used to seeing in, in the, especially in the Trumpian era here in the United States. Uh, so I had a chance to sit down. Last week you heard my conversation with Jamie. This week you can take a listen now to at least hopefully just part, at least part of our my interview with Guy Nativ. This film is intense, visceral, brutal. It's an incredible character study of a man at a crossroads wanting a different life, a better life, but feeling the push and pull within himself. Um, and for Guy to bring, put this on paper for Jamie to then interpret, it's incredible. So take a listen to at least part of my interview with writer-director Guy Nativ talking skin. Number one, to have the guts to tell this story. And God love Oren for having the guts 
yeah. to stepping in to produce yeah. oh, this yeah. story. Yeah, he, he, yeah. Um, he did a good deed. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. And you you couldn't have found a more perfect time. Yeah, timing wise, timing wise is, is it's incredible. The stars aligned for you with this one. Yeah. You know, I'm curious how long it took you to get Brian to agree to let you tell this story. So um, I read this article in Tel Aviv in a, in a coffee shop, and I um, called my today wife, but back then girlfriend, Jamie, and I told her, I think I found my first American feature, but how do we find these people? I mean, it's like they're in hiding in the FBI, you know? Yeah. So um, through MSNBC, who made a documentary about them, Raising Hate, um, we got their emails, and I wrote Brian a very um, deep and profound and, and an emotional email about my life, about my grandparents who are Holocaust survivors, and about why I need to tell this story as an Israeli Jew. And after two months, he came back to me and said, if you're really serious, let's Skype. And we Skyped, and I told him, listen, I, I really um, want, want to meet you. I want to see you face to face. And he said, okay, so come to Albuquerque, New Mexico. We'll give you an address. And if you're really serious, let's take it from there. I flew from Tel Aviv. My wife flew from L.A. We met them in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in a kind of a no-man's land, mm-hmm. kind of almost like a Café Baghdad. Can you remember this movie, Café Baghdad? This uh, oh. about the coffee shop in the middle of the desert? In the middle of the Yeah, yeah that's, that was... This, this, and they came, and we had this amazing meeting and um, um, amazing weekend. And after this weekend, I said, look, I need you to sign the life rights for me because I... You know, I'm diving into this, writing the script for the next three years, and I need you to help me. He said, I'm game, and he signed it, and um, I went back. And we will get back to Guy Nativ, but right now, we've got writer, director, editor Rick Alverson joining us. Welcome, Rick. Hello. Hello, Rick. How are you? Uh, I'm Okay. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Thank you for calling in today. Uh, and th- sure. thank you for making The Mountain. I am spellbound. This film is mesmerizing. Thank you. Yeah, and it's, it's not just the story. The story itself is fascinating because you basically, you loosely base this on Dr. Walter Freeman, who was a neurologist who performed lobotomies as cure-alls for mental illness. One of his patients was allegedly Kathleen Kennedy or Rosemary. Rosemary Kennedy. Um, A fascinating story. How did, what was the impetus for this story and then creating this fabulous visual look with your DP, Lorenzo Hagerman? Um, well, uh, uh, the, 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 the procedure that, that we, 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 you know, like you said, we loosely based it off of Friedman's sort of fall from grace that happened in the early fifties. Uh, he hit the road and sort of, uh, moved away from the, 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 the problems, uh, of the procedure and the realities. Uh, and, but, you know, we discarded all, all his biographical information, just used that, that historical moment uh as 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 foundation for the film uh you know it's really very much about uh, the problems of narrative the problems of narrative and individuals particularly uh privileged uh you know white men in the, in the 50s and you know those, those folks are still around the new iterations as we know very uh very uh acutely with our current administration um, these these narratives that uh, 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 you know lock you into a headspace that you just lunge forward um, and uh, c- constantly shoring up your uh, justifications and that you don't pay attention to any of the ramifications of your acts that that all of the detritus and uh, all of every, you know anything that would prove otherwise I mean it's essentially the hall of mirrors uh, that is increasingly 
the world that we live in individually. Uh, just you know, uh, things, the justifications and validations of our of our personal narratives. Um, I also see that in cinema. The problem of, of, of narrative as a as a totally compact, clear form in cinema that it that that that, has, that lets no light in, that doesn't fracture at all. And essentially, you know, when it when it works so-called best. It's just an intoxicant. It makes us uh, very comfortable. It makes us access nostalgia. We have feelings, you know, this sort of thing, which are, which are, are comforting. But ultimately, is is it a new experience, or is it just rehashing other experiences? Is it just referencing other experiences? Um, the, the the film very much deals with that, both in its subject matter and its form, uh, and 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 ultimately, you know, the reason why it is so highly composed and artificially. Uh, uh, you know, formally, artificially obsessive is because it's trying to, to make us aware that it's a movie mm-hmm. um, and bring us into the form and, uh, and, and away from some of the, the expectations and intoxications of, of narrative. Well, that's one of the things that, that fascinates me with it, your visual, your visual tonal bandwidth uh, in terms of this whole idea of the narrative because you strip color out. And you basically are presenting us with a blank canvas, which metaphorically can speak to a narrative. It can also speak to the blank canvas of what happens to these people after lobotomies are performed, which a lobotomy also is a metaphor for stripping the narrative, this comfortable narrative, away from our lives. And that is what, that held me, that, and then you throw Jeff Goldblum in there. And... We see two sides of a coin from him. We see the doctor during the day, and then we see the total opposite of this controlled uh, man performing, more or less. And then we see debauchery at night. And it is so palpable the way you design this that it's impossible to look away. Thanks. I would say, though, that, uh, that, that, that the active narrative, the envelope of narrative, which is re- very outdated uh, for all intents and purposes, is, is what is pacifying and, and lobotomizing us culturally, uh, that, that, it's so, that it's so convenient and has so clear and so disposable, ultimately, that it doesn't activate us and we have no new experiences. Um, and so the film intentionally tries to disrupt uh, you know the, the the clarity and, and disposability and compactness of narrative. It's broken in a number of ways in the thing, and, I, and the only hope is that 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 sort of that that moves us in our in our seat. It disrupts us. It upsets us in some constructive way, so that we're you know having having an experience that might be unfamiliar to you, to us. You know, which is the very definition of experience. Mm-hmm. And of course, what led you, I I can't having seen the film, I can see nobody but Jeff Goldblum playing the role of of Doctor uh, Wally Fines and Ty Sheridan. So the deliberateness and the quiet of his character of Andy, stunning, absolutely stunning. What led you? to these two as your principles. And then, of course, you toss in Udo Kier, who is just off the rails fabulous. Uh, what, what led me to what? What led you to casting Jeff Goldblum and Ty Sheridan as your principals uh, here? Right. Well, me and Ty worked together in my last film, Entertainment, and he played mm-hmm. a very different character, a hyperbolic, obscene clown, and and uh, uh, in, in, in we, we got along very well, and uh, both, both of those actors are incredibly curious and open and uh, interested in pushing the bounds of, of their work and their approaches. And, uh, you know, so uh, we, we kind of, a lot of us, you know, dug in together and asked a lot of questions about what it is we're doing and how, it, how you know, how it, how, it can be, how it can be done. And... Uh, um, and Jeff, particularly, you know, is uh, uh, you know at this point a, a national treasure. Yes. And uh, it's uh, it was it was it was compelling to us to you know weaponize his charisma a little bit, um, uh, particularly me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I uh, you know I I, I I like this idea of, of of playing with that contextually. You know this this idea of of letting it 
you know, uh, as opposed to giving it sort of, you know, from a directorial perspective, free reign and sort of just, you know, uh, uh, you know, exploiting it to its fullest potential, the idea of tamping it uh, down a bit so that we desire it. I'm really interested in desire in the audience is what's not given in the film uh, and what happens, in, you know, uh, in that space. Mm-hmm. Now, you also edited the film. So I'm curious, Rick, were you editing as you went or at least editing in your mind's eye? Or did you... Uh, I, or... Yeah, I think all... Any director that has a is is is, is fortunate enough to have a, a career for more than a few films has to edit during production. Uh, I mean, you're you know, it, not only does it happen during the writing and during revisions, but you you know, in order to choose shot selections, unless you're a director that that, that is entrusting the DP entirely uh, with that, and uh, which isn't fully direction, um, uh, then you're yeah, you're having to think about about the possibilities of the cut, you know, so. Um, but I, I, I you know, embrace that very much. Mm-hmm. How strictly did you stick to your script with this one? Or how scripted was it? Uh, it was very scripted. It was a full script. Uh, even the, even the, the uh, parts that uh, uh, were fortunate enough to feel as though they're improvisational, specifically Denis Levant's monologues, are, are scripted down to the, down to the word. Um, and uh yeah wow was there any room for improvisation on the part especially on the part of jeff um because he does have some scenes that and i know he is masterful with the word with the spoken word with the written word so i'm curious um if there was room for improvisation there uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's 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 always discussion going on, and there's always uh, you know something works, in, particularly in independent film, which I mean, its only real contrib- lasting contribution w- will be its limitations and and what how it forced uh, filmmakers to be reactive and reflexive and listen to their environments from a you know budgetary necessity, but it also has a that was also you know a, a, a contribution uh, you know formally. Um, so I mean, yeah, uh, we, there, there, there were times when we talked about, you know, we removed lines and we augmented them, and the conversations are in there, you know. But uh, that's, uh, I think, you know, uh, pretty, pretty typical. Gesturally, you know, I love working like with a, a lot of limitations, a lot of limitations in the frame, a lot of limitations in the blocking, and then like essentially, you know, and now a, lo- a lot of limitations in the in the scripting of dialogue. Uh, which isn't something I used to do, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it, within those things, there's there can be a lot. Particularly if you don't do a lot of rehearsals, there can be some 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 chaos and some bouncing. And I and I so I look for that in there. This tacking back and forth, and this sort of, you know, the the discomfort in the actors that they also are on board for, and, you know, this sort of uh, uh, engineered flailing a bit. Mm-hmm. How beneficial was it to you working again with Lorenzo Hagerman? Because I know you worked with, with you've worked with Lorenzo before. Uh, does that help you immensely with a film such as this? Sure. I mean, this is a was a period piece, and and so I mean, it was difficult uh, and uh, uh, to 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 make and and, and on the, on a certain schedule, et cetera. So. Um, you know, having a DP that understands you and that, you know, you have a, have a, you know, a, a language which is really, really beneficial. Yeah. Well, Rick, I can't thank you enough for calling in. I know you're on a busy schedule today, uh, as I was told by your publicist. Um, the Mount, it is just, I am in love with this film. I have oh, to. Thank you. I have. I have to see it again because there is so. Oh yeah. Well, it's open in. It's right now. It's at the New York the week and then it's opening at uh, the, the uh, Alamo Draft House over on the, on the east side uh, on Friday so uh, folks over there please please catch it uh, it means the world to us to have have people see it in theaters and uh, oh. yeah. yeah and as I said I have to see it again because there is so much here there's so much underlying uh, texture that I don't want to miss anything and I want to be able to absorb it it's one of those films, and it stays with you long after the curtain closes. Rick, 
appreciate it very much. Thank you, thank you. And I hope I get to talk to you again about your next project. Sounds good. Thanks, Rick. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was Rick Alverson, writer, director, editor of The Mountain. See it, see it, see it. And now, I'm so excited. We have Kirby Bliss Blanton joining us. Hi, Kirby. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm so happy to be talking to you. That's so nice. I appreciate that so I'm, much. I, I, you're, on, you're on a roll here. I, the first time I remember seeing you in a film, and I think you did the press day for it, too, was for um, Green Inferno. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did. I got to do that. That was super fun. Yes. And, I mean, that was an interesting film from Eli. Uh- <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget the call that I got when I got that movie. And he was like, this is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. And it for sure was. And of- but we had so much fun. And, of course, then you work with him again on Death Wish. Uh, yeah, he was so lovely. He was like, look, I have this part, and I think you should do it. And I was on another film, actually, um, in Canada, and I had to put myself on tape really quick um, for MGM to approve me. And I did that, like, in between, like, on a lunch break, literally. Um, and, you know, they approved me, and casting approved me, and Eli was, you know, proud of me for getting the tape done. And, you know, it was <laughs> nice. He thought of me first, so it meant a lot to me that I got to do it. Well, look, after what you endured with the Green Inferno, he should think of you first, let me tell you. It was nice to, yeah, it was nice to be on, like, a studio film with him where we could, you know, there was, like, all the crafty and stuff like that when in, when we were in the jungle. It was, yeah. like, you know, anyways, it was a different experience entirely, but anything was fun with him because he's amazing and he's a great director and an actor's director. So yeah. it was a pleasure to get to work with him again, and I'm praying I get the other another opportunity. Oh, something tells me you will. Something tells <laughs> me you will. You know, and now you have two films out right now. Um, absolutely do. amazing. You've got Wishman, which you are fabulous as Kitty Carlisle. You and Andrew Steele are just a dream team. Watching the two of you play tit for tat uh, is just delicious and delightful. And then, oh, thank you. And then we get you in Adam Marino's film Ring Ring. And mm-hmm. you and Malcolm Goodwin get to play back and forth. Two very, very, very different films. And two very, you couldn't even, <laughs> I mean, they're on completely different aisles in a grocery store. One's an apple, one's a Cheeto. It's completely different. I love that description. One's an apple, one's a Cheeto. It's true. You can't even get them in the same grocery store, probably. <laughs> you know, it's a testament to your, to your ability. I mean, because when you look back oh. over your career, and it's like one of your very early roles, you survived Hannah Montana. Uh, yes, somehow, somehow. So you survived, and you were on more than one episode, no less. Uh, yeah, I was supposed to be on a few more, but, uh, you know, things, stuff happens. Stuff happens. But you, exactly. And then, you know, you get some, uh, some prominence, uh, thanks to Eli, with his films, and then you did, uh, you did Alive in Denver. But now... Alive in Denver was great, yeah. And even before that project actually, you know, kind of skyrocketed a little yeah. bit. That's how most people know me and stop me on the streets from that one. So I was very lucky to get that at such a young age. But, you know, you just... It's been steady growth, steady growth. Now you get these two films. What is it that attracted you to each of them? They're both they're both small, as I like to call them, low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But sometimes those end up being the best ones because the caliber of performance and the heart that goes into making them, especially with a film like Wishman. Yeah, and, you know, they actually care about the actors and are worried about our performances, not just making the day, you know, and making sure that. So it's important that, um, yeah, these stories that are told and regardless of the budget or, you know, where we are, if we're on location or not. And it, it just, it's important that these stories are told. And, you know, once they approached me and I got to read each script, and again, they could not be more different. Um, but I, I, I kind of, I first read the script and see if the story kind of, you know, affects me in any way. And then, um, obviously, I just kind of look at the characters, and they're both very different, but they're also both very complicated. Mm-hmm. And I saw bits and pieces of myself in both of them. You know, I love Kitty's, you know, sass. Actually, they're both pretty sassy. Um, uh, I'd say but, so. You know, after getting to meet Kitty in person, I was like, oh, this woman is strong, and I love that. And her relationship with her, you know, significant other isn't the normal relationship. They're more friends. They're more, you know, they give each other a hard time. And it's, 
you know, to this day, even at the, you know, premieres and stuff, they're not lovey-dovey. It's more of like a friendship partnership mm-hmm. in a way. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was super fun to just delve into something and have her on set to just ask any questions, too, which is a little intimidating at first. But she's like, oh, Kirby, honey, you got to have cigarettes on your desk. I was smoking like a <laughs> chimney back then. I was like, oh, okay, that's not something I would have done as a character choice. So I'm glad you said something. <laughs> but, you know, things were different back then. And it was just so great. They were both on set a lot, and they both kind of um, made sure that we were staying true to their story, which is important. You know, he'd be like, oh, the cops didn't do that at that day. We would, we would have that tucked in. Or, oh, we didn't do that. You know, and it was all very specific. So it's all extremely genuine because they were there making sure that it was exactly how it, you know, it happened and that it, it all stays true to the story, mm-hmm. which was great. And then Adam's, you know, we had so much fun, and me and Malcolm had, like, such great chemistry and it, again, it's another kind of love story. These two buddies, it's kind of like a buddy cop film, I like to say, in a mm-hmm. way, because these two people have no idea what they're embarking on just trying to get this cell phone back, and then it becomes, like, high stakes very quickly. And at the end of the day, they're kind of just coworkers. They're buddies, you know, but um, they get to know each other pretty well in that, in, that, in that basement because of just, like, sheer terror and having to figure out, you know, a way out. And you learn that he's got a lot more going on to him than what she knew at work and she's got a lot more demons than she ever was willing to share with her just you know co-workers so I think it's I think it's kind of cool to see that kind of a relationship develop but you know what I love with both of these characters Kitty and Wishman and Amber in Ring Ring is that both women are very strong they are mm-hmm. sassy and very smart because when you're watching Ring Ring here we have Amber and Will and they're being they're held in a basement. Yeah, absolutely. And, well, and even before the basement, they were trying to figure out a way to make money to, on their own because they didn't it. like their boss. And you know? so they're when, already and when the phone and when the phone got lost, it's Amber who's coming up with the ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the woman Which coming up with the ideas. On the normal dynamic of a female and um, mm-hmm. male, you know, buddy duo usually would be the opposite, which was fun because. Malcolm in real life is very, you know, very, very intelligent and not meek whatsoever. But that was kind of his character. And I, on the other hand, am kind of sassy in real life. But, you know, it was just kind of a different character play than he's used to and a different dynamic than a normal um, female and male character we usually play that's very on the nose when we were doing something a little more interesting and a little more complicated, mm-hmm. I think. And, of course... The character of Amber in Ring Ring is a very physical role, too. You've got a lot of physicality yeah, in yeah. that role. And that, I think, is you haven't had to do anything that physical since Eli Roth. Uh. I was going to say, that was that probably was my um, only time that I've been that physical. And it was something that I you know, have to recall back to a bunch and saying, I can do this. Okay, I can do this. I've figured it out. I can handle it. You know, lots of stunts and things like that, which I enjoy. I've had to do on some of my smaller horror films and stuff, and I really enjoy doing it. I love learning every part of, you know, the filmmaking process. So if it involves stunts that I am, you know, legally allowed to do, I will absolutely (laughs) sign me up, you know, and I just like learning every single part of how to make something look extremely real. And so, you know, even just that one part with the nail gun, we had to go back and reshoot. And, like, you know, we, we want it all to look perfect, and it's really hard to do to where we're not hurting everyone, hurting mm-hmm. anyone. So it's such a, a fine line, but it's fascinating getting to learn how to do it all. But it was fun. I really enjoyed it. I like being physical because I'm physical in my comedy in real life, and I'm very just, like, I'm always talking with my hands, or and I'm kind of a klutz and tripping. So <laughs> with uh, the comedy part of my, you know, life and in my career I feel like physical is always kind of something that I go to well you know something that I love about the diversity of all of your roles is okay the green inferno you're you're in the jungle you're Mm -hmm. in you're in chili wood as as Elon (laughs) used to call it Yep, exactly Um, yeah you're in chili wood Um, we brought notice to chili wood I think I think you did I think you re- you that was a very very big deal, and he was very he was very proud of doing that too. Yeah, yeah. But, we all were we all were proud that they were so welcoming as well. So there you are. You you're out in the the open spaces, even though you do get put into a cage and all of that fun stuff in the Green Inferno. Mm-hmm. Wishman, it's more contained. You're on more sets, um, but you're getting mm-hmm. out and about, and you're you're traveling. You're trying to keep an eye on Andrews you know, Frank, 
uh, and keep him out of trouble and from doing things that he shouldn't be doing after when he's trying to recover. And then with Ring Ring as Amber, it's a very Mm -hmm. for the bulk of the film, I'd say a good 85 percent of the film. You're in a basement. You're it's very, very contained. It's very packed Mm -hmm. with stuff. And I find it interesting how you emotionally navigate the different spaces that Mm -hmm. you're physically put into. It's really interesting to watch you do that and to have two films at the same time. Um, Yeah, that is so different. I mean, what's funny is I did these all at like very different times in my life. So it just so happens that these two are coming out at the same time. It's like kind of a bit of a shock, actually. It's surprising to me because... (laughs) Yeah, I did them at, like, very different times. Wish Man was more recent, and Ring Ring was, oh, gosh, like three That was a while ago. ago. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's it's always really fun to see when things actually come to fruition because there's way too many great films, television shows, pilots that never see the light of day, um, and it's usually because of politics or finances and whatever else, and it's sad because these are things that a lot of people, you know, crew and actors and everyone involved put a lot of hard work and time into, so... I'm really glad that both of these stories are finally, you know, people get get to see them because we all worked really hard. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, what's very interesting is not too many people get the chance to play a a real-life character, a real-life person, let alone one yeah. who is very much, it's not a historical figure, it's somebody who is alive and living and able to participate in the filmmaking and production process. What did did that put any knowing that Frank and Kitty were both there, were both heavily involved in this production, and here mm-hmm. you are playing Kitty? Does that did that put any kind of onus? Did you have any kind of trepidation in tackling that role, knowing I mean, that the their very, eyes are there looking? Right at the very beginning, it was very intimidating. You know, you just want to do them justice. You just don't want to disappoint anyone. Um, but then I kind of came to the, the realization that they picked us, you know, I mean, Frank was very heavily involved in making sure that, and figuring out who played and Andrew, you know, was the one he, at the end of the day, as well as, you know, CEO, our incredible director landed on. And then same with, you know, they had to have Kitty, not just see my picture, you know, but actually watch the act. And, you know, it's like at the end of the day, they, they did get to choose. So I kind of have to you know, put some credit within them and just say, okay, well, they chose us for a reason. They saw something in us, you know, and you just kind of have to trust your talent and trust the people who chose you. And once I started reading, you know, some of the lines with um, Andrew in front of Kitty and things like that, she was just like, oh, you got it. Just give him a hard, yeah, just, yeah, <laughs> give him a hard time. That's exactly right. Yeah, this is great. You know, so once she was enthusiastic and approving of what we were doing, then, you know, some of the pressure is off and you feel more like, Okay. All right. She gets it. I get it. We're on the same page. I know what kind of um, path I want to go in. And then obviously if there's any little tiny things like the cigarettes on the desk or things like that that she wants to tweak because of, you know, technically I was not there, so I don't know. So little things like that, having her there was just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And and of course, that puts more on you than entering into a character like Amber, where it's just all up to you to create this woman. Yeah, it's honestly that was difficult for me too. I mean, she she's you know in the in the program. She's it's not just you know um, like she said it's more than pot. I'll just say that you know. So she was mm-hmm. doing some hard stuff, and that I can't I, I can't actually relate to. But it's something that was fascinating for me to kind of delve into. You know what I mean? Um, it's a difficult thing for a lot of people to deal with, and I wanted to be very sensitive to everyone who's dealing with it. You know. Um, but also respect the fact that, you know, this character is evolving and she is trying to get better. So she knows that she has screwed up and she hasn't made the best decisions, but she's trying to get better. So you just kind of have to remember all the things in your life, like the time you screwed up or the time you've disappointed your parents, whether it be, you know, and just kind of hone in on that feeling, but to the higher stakes, I feel like, because mm-hmm. I can't physically relate to trying to get off hard drugs, but yeah. I can physically relate to, you know, feeling disappointment in myself or disappointing someone else in, in my own life in a different way. I guess you just kind of have to hone in on that. And I just really appreciate the fact that, um, 
you know, everyone on set was very encouraging, you know, and it just made me feel confident in the fact that whatever choice that I'm going to make, you know, if it doesn't work in this take, I'll try it again. And I don't know, I think I just kind of found her and Mm -hmm. it felt very comfortable once I was already doing it because I feel like I got to know Amber just by trying to figure out her motives and, you know, how she's trying to better herself, just like we all are. Mm -hmm. And that's easy to relate to. Well, I like the character of Amber. I really liked what you, I like her, yeah, what you I, brought to her. Me too. Well, unfortunately, Kirby, we're all out of time, and I have... For oh, what, no. I could talk to you forever, Debbie. I could <laughs> talk to you. You have to come back on the show, Kirby, because I know you have so many projects in the works. Oh, I would love to. Oh, you have to come back on the show. I'm so glad that you could that you could make the time today. Uh, Absolutely. No, I was thrilled to do it. I actually, I got so eager beaver, I almost called last Monday. <laughs> I was like, oh, wrong date. Okay, we'll meet you back in a week. Well, you know, last Monday, Adam was on. You could have called. We could have ju- oh, okay. I would have been like, hey, y'all. <laughs> That's it. He would have been utterly shocked. But Oh, oh my God. Too funny. Oh, Kirby, thank you. Thank you. Wishman, it's ex- I know it's back in L.A. Uh, mm-hmm. this it's at week- the Arena Theater. Yep. At, at Arena. First, and Ring Ring is out there now. So yep. everybody can see you everywhere. Kirby, thank you. Aww. Thank you. You're so lovely. Thank you so much, Debbie. And I, I appreciate will, you taking the time. Oh, and I will talk to you again soon. Yes, let's do it. Sounds good. Have thank, a great week. Okay? You too, Kirby. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. And that was Kirby Bliss Blanton. Um, okay, which I got two lines blinking here. Okay, one. Okay. And now we're jumping gears again, people. And now we've got Drake. Is this you? Yes, I'm here. Hello, Drake Dorimus. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Well, I'm very happy to be talking to you about one of the sweetest documentaries that we will ever see. Love, uh, 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 I mean, Love Antosha, all about Anton Yelchin. Wow, wow, wow. Your heart smiles through this whole documentary. It is. It, it that is, is. That is so exciting to hear. That's exactly what we what we want to hear, Debbie. Thank you so much for watching it. Well, you know what's really interesting, Drake, is Norm. You're known best as a writer director, but here, mm-hmm. what I found striking with Love Antosha is that after Anton's passing in 2016, his parents came to you. You had worked with him before, because uh, the. Mm-hmm. Anton was prolific in writing his cards and letters and doodling pictures and for his mother, um, primarily his mother. You could see that um, he loved his mother beyond belief. Um, and they came, yes. they came yes. to you, but you stepped back from directing. You stayed on as a producer, but you stepped back and said, no, I'm not going to direct. And you turned it over to Garrett Price to direct. Mm-hmm. That's not something we see or hear of too often, Drake. <laughs> um, what led you well, I mean, to step a, to take a step back? Yeah, well, I mean, it's very tricky subject material. Obviously, knowing Anton so well and having worked with him, you know, the idea that somebody needed to be a little bit subjective uh, and tell the truth and tell a really, you know, honest story was the key here. And Garrett had never directed before, and. Uh, we went to film school together. He's an amazing documentarian editor, and, and it just seemed like kind of the idea that we would step outside of both of our comfort zones and do something totally different that we haven't done before would be in the spirit of what Anton did in his whole life. And mm-hmm. Music and photography and film and everything that he did, it was just, you know, he was always pushing boundaries and trying new things. And it just kind of seemed like the perfect project for us to try something different on. But um, Gary made a really beautiful film, and we're super proud of it, and it's really... Um, you know, kind of a dream come true, I think, for everybody who knew him. You know, I'm curious how you and Garrett went about developing a through line, because clearly there is there are tons of archival interviews that are out there, archival, uh, you know, in print, video, film, radio interviews, then everything that his mother has, then his own personal archives of his photography and music that he wrote. Where Where do you start in culling this down to come up with a through line so that you can make it manageable to start navigating? Well, I think it all started from Garrett really wanting to tell the story from Anton's POV. 
Mm-hmm. And he had so many diary entries and notes and, you know, notes from, from his, uh, from the films he did and all those different things. So we had this plethora of material from him, actually, so we really could understand his perspective about life and art and different things like that. So that was the framework from the beginning. And Nicolas Cage reads his words in, in oh. the film and reads his diary entries. And it really is kind of, you know, the oldest soul version of Anton. They're, they're, they're kind of similar souls. So the idea that, that Anton would have become like Nick Cage later in his life is kind of perfect. So he reads them all. And it really was just about trying to create it from Anton's perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you decide what to include and then from there expand to your interview subjects? The fact that you got Martin yeah. Landau in there is, uh, that was one of your big gets, I think, with this one. Yeah, it was the last thing he did, sadly, but it was really special, the, the, the relationship they had. I mean, he really viewed Anton as a contemporary in many ways, and it was really cool. You know, but how did you call down your, your interview subjects? Because obviously you've got his parents in there. Um, his mother is just, she's fabulous. She is a fabulous interview subject. Yeah. Talking about yes. her son. His dad is much more to the point, matter of fact, um, but mom arena. Mm-hmm. But then you bring in Chris Pine, particularly moving, listening to Chris, uh, Jennifer Lawrence, Zachary Kinto. Yeah, uh, Jodie Foster. You've got, every, you've got a plethora of people that you can pick from, and yeah. even the ones that you do have. We're talking A-list celebrities here. So how do you narrow it down? And you know, because I I'm willing to bet that everyone that you ask said yes. Pretty much. I mean, you know, there are a few people I think that had a hard time talking about Anton and weren't ready to do it yet. Um, but for the most part, everybody that worked with him just really wanted to be a part of the film and really wanted to share their stories. And I think we had a really hard time, actually, you know, to be honest, uh, trying to bring it down into an hour and 40 minutes just because there were there so many amazing interviews and there's a few that didn't make it into the film, sadly. But, yeah, I mean, it's just it's really amazing, all the personal stories, and everybody was so honest. And the film is just a really honest portrayal of, of his journey in 27 years. Mm-hmm. And now, what was that editing process like? Were, were you guys editing as you went along? Uh, did you wait until you had accumulated everything? Uh, because I know with a documentary, editing always becomes one of the sticking points for so many mm. people. I, I've talked to so many documentarians who say, oh, yeah, I had 700 hours of footage. And it's like, okay, <laughs> where do you start? How do you well, get through this? Well, it's all Victor. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they they had so much footage of him as a child. And they archived so many photographs and diary entries and music and art and photography that he'd done over the years. I mean, they had so much material. So when we started the project, it was it was an unbelievable amount of material that could supplement, you know, um, the interviews that we did. But I mean, it was just an ongoing process. We would do some interviews, go back and shoot some more, do some pickup stuff, organize the archival stuff. I mean, it was just. A collage. I mean, the film really is a kaleidoscope of, of, of an artist's life, essentially. And I think the material kind of came to it in that way as well. So it was just a constant, uh, you know, juggling process. But Garrett, you know, being the director and editor, he was just really kind of the man for the process and had a vision for the film and really executed it right away and, and gained the trust of Irene Victor right away, which was amazing. And they really let him make the film he wanted to make. And, and it was honest. You know, they didn't tell him what to do. And he really did make a very subjective, honest movie that I think Anton would have loved. Mm-hmm. How hard was it for you? Were there moments during the making of where you actually had, where you had to take a step back? And Big time. Uh, a lot of days, a lot of moments, and, and it still is that way. I mean, when we took the film to Sundance earlier this year, you know, it was an incredibly emotional experience just having an audience see it for the first time. I think it really hit us how important it is to tell the story and I think it really hit everyone in the film mm-hmm. to tell the story Well, because some, um, some... you know, not a lot of people know his story so you know, we're really excited about having people see it that didn't know a lot about him and um, yeah I mean it, it has, it's a very emotional film but ultimately it's uplifting so the sort of the sadness that was that came along with, with, with this experience for me actually kind of subsides now mm-hmm. and the joy of just getting to share his life and to see people inspired actually kind of 
replaces that now. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that, that struck me, uh, because, Anton, he did have such a tragic death, uh, one of those freak accident types of death that you think, yeah. okay, it's going to happen to some, mm-hmm. some nameless, faceless person somewhere. You don't expect it to be a young, vital man like this at his own home. Um, mm. But through it all, you could have taken, you and Garrett could have gone uh, a more subdued route. But the entire, like I said at the top of the interview, it's it makes your heart smile watching this. Mm. This is up mm. the entire documentary. You keep it upbeat. You do not dwell on the tragedy, the accident that happened. No. You have just no, one shot, one shot of the driveway and the gate, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just the one, yeah, I mean, the one ABC yeah. clip of David Muir announcing announcing the passing. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that was you know really early on the story we wanted to tell. I mean. You know, as tragic as it was, it was such a small, brief moment in his life, and there was so much more to his life. So we really didn't want that to be the story. You know, we really wanted to focus on what his life really was, and I think that that's the movie is. So yeah, absolutely, that was just from the from from the from the first moment that was definitely in our minds that we did not want to dwell on that or make that the tone of the piece really and drive it that way at all. Mm-hmm. And something else is something that it's not at the forefront of the film, but in today's political climate, sociopolitical climate, you mm-hmm. can't help but notice this also touches on this is this is the the family, the Elchin family. This is their immigrant story as well. Yeah, uh, and yes, absolutely. and that the timing of this documentary to come out now in this particular day mm-hmm. and age. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it speaks volumes as as to oh, as to the hope of why people want to come to America and what they can and do accomplish when given the chance. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. It I, is the absolute American dream story. Really, it, it's an amazing story. They came here with nothing. Uh, and raised their son uh, in the San Fernando Valley, and he fell in love with performance and acting, and ended up, um, you know, becoming who he was. And it was just, I mean, you know, they were artists; they were, uh, you know, famous figure skaters uh, in Russia, and, and uh, you know, left everything for the, you know, to, to find a better life for their son. And it's just, it's, it's the most. I, I actually get the most emotional during that part of the movie, at the beginning, when really kind of uh, describes that journey that they took. Oh, yeah. It's, it's amazing the risk they took. Absolutely. When Arena talks about selling everything that they had, and after selling, you know, her great-grandmother, she couldn't sell because it belonged to the government, but selling everything that they had and all that they ended up with was $8,000. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's heartbreaking. But then to see what, what they accomplished, and it's not just making a life, but it's bringing Anton and Anton and encouraging him for such a thriving life. Mm-hmm. And that really stands out. They weren't content to just come here. They wanted more for their son. They're they are from that generation where you want more for your children and your grandchildren than what you had. And they live that, and we see that in this documentary. And that's something, Mm -hmm. you know, that really struck me in the first 15 15 minutes of the film, was seeing that unfold. Yeah, it really is timely in a lot of ways, like you said. And, you know, um, know, uh, racism, anti-Semitism, the the prejudice that they went through, um, you know, it's just, yeah, it's an amazing story, and, and uh, you know he was their only son, and and um, you know the, the tragedy of the whole thing, and watching them go from such loss and sorrow to now finding some joy in sharing their son's story mm-hmm. is um, kind of the best gift that this entire process has given me personally. Mm-hmm. Where can everybody see Love and Tosha? Well, it opens in Los Angeles this Friday at the New York Theater, Landmark Theater. 
And then it's over in New York uh, a week from this Friday, August 9th. And then slowly but surely throughout the course of August, they'll be rolling out to uh, major cities all over the country, um, you know, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, uh, Dallas, places like that. And then um, uh, beyond that, it'll be uh, available online. But, um, you know, uh, we're going to be doing Q&As on Friday night, uh, Saturday, and Sunday in Los Angeles and um, answering questions and talking about Anton. And we're just excited to share the movie. And, you know, I know he has a huge fan base for his work as Chekhov in Star Trek. But one look at this film and anybody that ever thought that that's all that Anton was, you've got a big surprise <laughs> coming because he is yes. so yeah. much more. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's exciting. It's so exciting to watch people who don't know much about him or just know that to discover uh, everything about him. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I was an admirer of his work for quite a while, long before Star Trek. And to see where he went and the leaps and bounds that he made in his film career. I was not familiar mm -hmm. with his photographic career. Uh, yeah. Let's leave that at that. Um, Chris, Chris Pine's face will it is forever ingrained on my mind as he was talking about uh, the trips to the valley. Um, so <laughs> but but just yeah. everybody. Yes, you know what I'm talking about. Um, everybody, oh, yeah. everybody oh, is yeah. in for a real treat. A, they will really get to know an incredible young man through this documentary. Uh, I hope so. Yes, we we agree. Ah. <laughs> uh, Drake, thank you so, so much. Thank you for making the doc. Thank you, Debbie, for taking the time to watch the film and talk about it. It means so much to us. Uh, well, I hope you'll come back on the show again. I know you're always working on something. Anytime. I'd love to. Ah, uh, fabulous. Drake, thank you, thank you. And again, everybody can see thank Love you, Antosha thank you so, so much. this Friday. Everyone can see it. So. Yes, this Friday. Fabulous. Thank you, Drake. Bye-bye. Yes, thank you so much. Bye. And we got everybody in. We ran seven minutes over. But Pam can fix that later. Um, so thank you, thank you to Rick Alverson, to Kirby Bliss Blanton, to Drake Doremus. Three great films that are out there. The Mountain. Well, four great films. The Mountain, Ring Ring, Wish Man, and starting this Friday, Love Antosha. All of them. Well worth your dollar. Go see them. You won't be disappointed. That is all the time we have today. Next week, we've got another full show for you. Only two guests, though. We're not squeezing in three. Only two next week. Um, so, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Behind the Lens.